the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, new advances on prolonged life extension, absconded with and chewed up by Giant Turtle Special Forces Group, skulking about pretending to be footstools. Apparently, the secret ingredient is mock, mock turtle soup. The Gutenberg Press comes into its own, finally, with New Bane Mass Markets. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We continue with part two of a two-part roundtable discussion with David Weber and heads and members of fan organizations devoted to his work. We have the head of the Royal Manticoran Navy, Martin Lessam, and Christopher Weave, the current director of BU9, the Honorverse Consulting Group along with Arias Kaufman, another Bunine member, and Anton Peterson, a fan author science fiction convention liaison with decades of experience. This group talks about the relationship of an author with his fans and readers and the way that relates to the great books and stories at the heart of it all, especially in the case, the ideal case, of David Weber and his fandom and readership. So that's coming up. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Leaden Universe novel, Alliance of Equals. Here's the news. Alert, alert, the May mass market paperbacks are at booksellers everywhere. Out now is Monster Hunter Siege by Larry Correa. When Monster Hunter International's top hunter, Owen Zestava Pitt, was given a tip about some hunters who had gone missing in action, he didn't realize their rescue mission would snowball into the single biggest operation in MHI's history. Their men are being held prisoner in a horrific nightmare dimension, and the only way to reach them is through the radioactive ruins of a monster-infected war zone. And if that wasn't bad enough, it's also the home base of the powerful creature behind the devastating attack on the last dragon on Copper Lake. It turns out ancient gods of chaos really hate trespassers, but this god picked a fight with the wrong crew and now MHI wants payback. Calling on their allies, a massive expedition is formed and with the odds stacked against them, a legion of hunters goes to war. It's D-Day at the City of Monsters. Also in mass market format in May is 1635 The Wars for the Rhine by Annette Peterson. This is part of Eric Flint's 1632 Ring of Fire series, of course. In the year 1635, the Rhineland is in turmoil. The impact of the Ring of Fire, the cosmic accident which transported the small modern West Virginia town of Grantville to Europe in the early 17th century, has only aggravated a situation that was already chaotic. Perhaps nowhere in Central Europe did the Thirty Years' War produce so much upheaval as it did at the borderlands between France and Germany. Archbishop Ferdinand of Cologne is determined to restore the power of the Catholic Church over the Middle Rhine, the so-called Bishop's Alley, and has unleashed a plot for that purpose. But the same Middle Rhine is territory which Landgrave William V of Hesse-Cassel is determined to seize for himself under the guise of expanding the influence of the United States of Europe. 
Add the unexpected arrival of Austria's most capable general, Melchior von Hatzfeld, along with the most ruthless spy and torturer in the Rhineland, Felix Gruyard, and the wars for the Rhine have erupted, and only the devil knows how they will end. 1635, the wars for the Rhine by Annette Peterson, and Monster Hunter Siege by Larry Correa, are now in mass market paperback, as well as ebook and hardcover at booksellers everywhere. This is part two of a two-part interview. Part one is available on last week's podcast. I want to welcome to the podcast David Weber, Christopher Weave, Martin Lessam, Anton Peterson, and Arius Kaufman. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi. Hello. Hey. So we are going to bring to our listeners a roundtable discussion this time on the podcast. We know that the most important interaction with an author, that is, an author of books, is the reader who reads a book written by that author. But what about when it goes beyond that? What about the case when a reader becomes so interested in the world the author has created, the culture he's illustrated, and the characters he's brought to life, that there's a desire to take it farther or further? or whichever one is the right one, perhaps to interact with the author, uh, uh, definitely to interact with others who feel and think the same way. And then there's the author who experiences this wash of interest, even obsession in his readers and fans. What do we make of this? What do we do with this? How does it become a good or even a very, very good thing? Which I think in this test case, which we will examine here, it, it has. Uh, to talk about this, we brought together an amazing group. First of all, we have David Weber, the creator of the Honor Harrington series and the Honorverse within which it is set. This is a multiple New York Times bestselling series. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of fans and readers out there. And with us are folks who are kind of the apex of David Weber fans and readers and people interested in the Honorverse. And I'd like to sort of have you folks introduce yourself. Tell us who you are in the Weber continuum and maybe tell us also your secret identity in real life, because I've so many times been amazed at some of the backgrounds of David Weber fans and readers. Um, just some, uh, just some cool folks out there that are into the into his stuff. Uh, so can we maybe start with Chris, uh, who is um, who's who's involved with Bu Nine, right, Chris? Right. So I, I'm Chris Weave. I'm one of the founders of Bu Nine, which is the uh, technical analytic visualization group that supports David. So um, when David says, like, I need to figure out how this particular thing I've been writing about for 10 years actually works, we're the guys who can figure that out and we can draw pictures of it and do all sorts of things like that. Um, in my day job, um, I've been a professor. At the, I'm a naval analyst and I used to be a war game designer. Um, I'm a former professor at the Naval War College where I was in the wargaming department. And before that, I was at the Center for Naval Analysis where I was a wargame designer. And I also had this collateral duty of every now and then I'd get to go off on aircraft carriers and destroyers and cruisers and watch the Navy do exercises and help uh, help tell them what actually happened afterwards. Um, and so I got pulled into the David Weber uh, Honor Harrington orbit um, actually through a bunch of people that were hardcore Honor Harrington fans that were sort of being brought together 
by a game designer who was trying to make a movie. Um, so if you want to diagram that out, it's, there's a lot of con weird connections here. <laughs> this is exactly what I mean. Just some of uh, the, the sort of, um, high powered individual who, who is also a fan in, in this particular group. What about you, Martin Lessum? Uh, so yeah, so uh, Martin Lessons. So in, in in this particular group, I am the the founder of the Royal Manticore Navy, which is the official Honor Harrington Fan Association. We're a group of about oh five thousand ish people worldwide who all gotten together for our love of David's books. Um, in my in my secret identity, real life, um, I am an attorney who does regulatory affairs for pharmaceutical companies. So I help them deal with governmental agencies. Um, I'm a former naval officer and just a guy who likes to read a lot of science fiction books. What is your title in the RMN, by the way? I was... uh, so uh, I am the first, <laughs> yeah, so, so I am the first Lord <laughs> of the Admiralty is the official title uh, in the fan universe. Um, from a corporate perspective, I'm the president and chairman of the board. What is David's title in the RMN? Or does is it God? <laughs> uh, so, so David has two official titles. David is either referred to as the creator, uh, or he is referred to as the prime minister. <laughs> and we're talking about the fan club and not the actual RN men, which doesn't exist either in David Weber's books. Oh, oh yes, it does. <laughs> oh. Well, actually, both of them sort of do, I guess. Uh, and uh, what about you, Anton? Hi there, this is Anton Peterson. I have been working with both Bunine and I'm a member of the TRMN under Martin, which is a lot of fun. Um, I got involved with the David Weber universe because my one of my secret identities is that I work at a number of conventions, both science fiction and Japanese anime, and I was David's liaison back in 2006. So I have been staffing conventions now for about 20 years. So the organization utilizes me because I've been doing this for a long time. I've been a fan have of David since basically the, the two, early um, days. Have you been involved with the two um, sort of honor-based conventions, HonorCon and, and uh, Manticon? Yes, I've, I assisted with the first HonorCon uh, that came out um, in charge of the guests there, and that's what I do specifically. And for Manticon, I've been also in charge of guest relations there as well. And uh, Arius, how about you, Arius Kaufman? I'm neck of the wood. Uh, yeah, I uh, I uh, joined Bu9 back in 2009-ish. Uh, largely, my area of expertise has more to do with human training, such as uh, sociopolitical uh, constructs, legal systems, economics, that kind of thing. In real life, uh, I actually have gone through several careers, including uh, during the 90s, I was a uh, network admin and web software engineer, and then I became a naval analyst uh uh, at the Center for Naval Analysis, and I have since left and have gotten my master's in education so I can uh, teach. And yet you kill some of them off. Um, can you talk about uh, how I certain characters have worked their way and certain names have worked their way into your book? How does an author uh, decide to do that? Well, I was the very first person to kill Joe Buckley. 
that's I, a long running BAME uh, meme of sorts. Yes, I'd like the cover of the 1632 books from the anatomy lesson. Um, okay, a couple of three things. I started years and years ago auctioning red shirts in the books to raise money for the charities at the cons. Um, and um, it was going swimmingly until Tim Zahn said to me, Young Jedi, you are not aware of the full functioning of the Force. And I'm like, yeah. He says, first, you auction the right to appear in the book. Then you auction the right to deserve if the character lives or dies. And I said, oh, Master Yoda, you know. And um, at that particular con, uh, Anazan bid to be the red shirt, and then she bid to stay alive. <laughs> and as Tim was writing the check to the con, he said to me, the last time I give you advice, and I said, but Master Yoda, you have shown me the dark side of the Force, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. But that's how a lot of fans' names have wound up in the books. In other cases, it's like um, Indiana Graham, uh, the young uh, revolutionary in the last couple of books, is based on Indy Graham, Indiana Graham, uh, the son of uh, a very good friend of mine, uh, Bruce, Bruce and Tracer Graham, uh, who he lost to cancer just before his 21st birthday. Um, and I had put him into the books while he was, while he was still, still with us. And in a way, he's still with us, if, if you see what I'm saying. Um, I have put people into books because they were important to me. There are a few names I've used because they were important. They were people who were important to people who were important to me, if you know what I'm saying. Um, and it is kind of um, running cascade of Easter eggs with me and, and my readers. I mean, people are constantly trying to figure out if this particular character was somebody who I inserted into the book. And I'm always, 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 always up front and forthright. And I say, it could be, you know, and, and keep going. Um, now, I've been catching some flack from a few readers of the EARC of Uncompromising Honor. They otherwise really, really like the book. But they're upset with me that a couple of characters survived, which is unusual for somebody to be upset with me in a book. But they're like, oh, what are the odds? And I told them the absolute truth. They're still alive because they made their saving throw. When I have, especially, especially a named character who is in a could-live, could-die situation, I roll a 20-side die. <laughs> to determine whether they live or they die. Now, I will confess that I will sh I will shade the die in their favor if they are, you know, especially dear to me or they've been around for a long time. But these people survived because they made their saving throw. Um, and I won't pretend that I was brokenhearted that they made it. There were some other people in the book who didn't make it um, who were going to. And there are a couple of characters in the book who I basically said, I spent 25 years working on this series. I can shade the die roll any way I want. They are going to either live or die, as the case may be. Um, but uh, it's kind of um, the named characters are kind of um, 
a special interaction with the fans. Now, I, Chris, I don't think I've I've actually put you or Arius in a book yet. Um, I don't so think you still, have I, either. That's correct. But I'm going to say dangles over your head now, you know. Um, well, and, and Chuck, I think Chuck I got Gannon, you. Chuck Gann- Gannon did yep, put a lieutenant lead in his first book, um, and he's a total jerk. Yeah, well, I, I owe Chuck a tuckerization <laughs> of Chuck. For the record, I've used that to tweak Chuck for years and to the point where he no yeah. longer is tweakable on it. And so when I'd, when I'd first say oh. that in, in, in his presence, he'd say, oh, no, no, he's really a good guy. He was just having a bad day, blah, blah, blah. He'll redeem himself in the end, I promise, et cetera, et cetera. And now when I say it in front of him, he just goes, yeah, yeah, because <laughs> he knows yeah, that I'm just tweaking it. <laughs> Well, I, I will say that the drawback to putting uh, 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 using a friend uh, or someone else's name is you have to be careful about how you do it. Okay, I mean I've got a pu- couple of people whose whose names I have used as as villains and bottom feeders and whatnot, uh, but these are usually people I know exceptionally well. And who I know are going to see the joke, like when I made uh, Tim Bolgio the villain in uh, A Beautiful Friendship um, and had him be a professor of Liberty University. Well, anybody who knows Tim Bolgio in LibertyCon knew exactly who I was talking about. Um, And he 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 got a real laugh out of it. But I would not do that with someone who I did not know well. I can do it to Chuck, though. I was gonna, that interaction with the fandom is what makes, you know, especially David so special, I think, to his fans. Because he does things like that, and especially for the charity work. Um, the TRMN, as we've discussed before, is just amazing with the amount of charity work. And I think a lot of people that have, you know, quote-unquote regular jobs only, don't understand that how giving fandom can be. Uh, one of the anime conventions I work for, Anime Detour, does their charity auction for the American Red Cross, specifically um, for their um, program to put smoke detectors in. We raised $22,000 in this last year to do that. Yeah. That's a lot of smoke detectors. I said, I've been to quite a few cons where I've seen the, the Bloodmobile parked out in the parking lot. Um, and the fans are, you know making their trip and getting their orange juice before they go off to their next panel. It's just the kind of, kind of people they are. I, I think that become um, involved in fandom, you have to be a social animal. But I think in many cases, those of us who have become involved in fandom haven't really felt like we fitted in, in the mainstream rest of the world. And we got involved in the books in the first place because it was our our retreat, our special place where we felt safe. And then we found out there were other people who read the books. And some of those people were kind of cool. And so for a lot of people in fandom, fandom is family, found family in every sense of the word. And, and you see that, at, especially at long-running established cons. Um, where you know, I mean, there there are folks in Liberty Con who take one look at me and say, "Uncle David." <laughs> well, of course we're Southern, but um, um, 
that kind of thing is difficult for someone who's not involved with fandom, who hasn't seen it in action, to understand uh, the, the, the level of interaction. Now, that doesn't mean there can't be feuds, and feuds in fandom can be among the ugliest uh, on the planet, but that's because the people you care about are the ones who can really piss you off. Yeah, I, I think it's it's worth thinking a little bit. I'd like to chime in on here real quick because um, um, one of the things that occurred to me is that if you if you were not a member of fandom and you listen to this conversation, you might think that if you go to the TRMN, they're going to work you to death um, and things like that. And and that's that's not accurate. Um, it's more along the lines of fandom organizations um, are groups of people that have things in common and once Mm -hmm. they come together they have a tendency to do things in groups um and they will oftentimes provide a structure that allows you to can to to do things like that um you know it's most of the folks that i know in fandom who most of the folks in fandom i know who are worked to death are working themselves mm -hmm. to death yeah there's a lot Um, of truth to that Um, and, and, no and Martin may be one of them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Anton certainly <laughs> one of them. Um, and so, yeah, that's – and a lot of times also we've been talking about science fiction conventions, and I, I had an experience uh, a year or so ago. In fact, it was the not the last Honor Con, but the Honor Con before, where um, I had pointed out to one of my coworkers who was a science fiction fan, and I had, I had given him um, some – recommendations on books he should read, uh, specifically Marco Kluse's Frontline series. Um, and he, this guy is a former helicopter pilot for the Army, and, and he loved these books. He just loved them. And I said, you know, if you go to HonorCon, Marco Kluse is one of the guests of honor there, and you could probably, it's a relatively small con, you could probably spend an hour talking to him if you wanted to. And so I then, I then, I went away on a business trip, and when I came back, it had turned from my my coworker who had a bunch of user lose leave planning to go down uh, back to North Carolina by himself to go to this con. It had turned into woohoo road trip, and like five of my coworkers <laughs> were gonna, and which is great, you know. I li- I love opening up fandom to people. The thing that I found very disturbing though was that they kept using the word Comic Con. And, uh, you know, on the one hand, you had HonorCon, which yeah. at that point I think was around 400 people, versus Comic-Con, which is like 80,000. Um, of they, your closest friends. They have nothing in common with each other. They are as close to being in common as a Little League baseball game is with the World Series. Um, hey, 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 hey. Well, no, well that's just no, the no. difference. No, no, no. Uh, you know, that Comic-Cons are, are markets, and science yeah, fiction yeah. conventions are, are gatherings yeah. of, uh, of well, uh Yeah, but one, one thing, one thing clans, that does tribes. happen. What, one, thing, one thing that does happen, uh, Tony, is especially people who are not already part of fandom, you know, you're going to your first con. All right, you are venturing into Ruritania, all right? You've never been there before. Um, and it is interesting the way in which perceptions and expectations drive one another. Uh, 
in in a lot of ways. Um, the uh, and and something that I know is is a problem for uh, some people in fandom is when the 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 mundane who is at the first con does not fully understand con etiquette. <laughs> okay. Um, it, it, it's always, I, I hate to say this, but it is really true that nine times out of ten you can spot the newbie at a con uh, because they're the ones with the kind of dazed expression who are <laughs> sort of drifting around and saying, who are all these people? <laughs> Uh, that's true. Oh, On the other I hand, mean, I've been to hundreds of cons now, and well, at least dozens, and I still have that dazed expression sometimes. Yeah, yeah, that, that, yeah that's probably true. Well, Sharon and I were trying to count up the other day how many cons we've been to. It's a scary number because we've been doing this. Uh, the two of us have been doing this now for oh. We started going to cons together five, six years before we got married, and we've just done our, our 20th wedding anniversary. Um, we've been to a ton of cons um, in that time. You're, I mean, part of the reason that you have this fan base is because you are extremely accessible as an author. I mean, a lot of authors, you just there ain't no chance you're going to meet them. Um, but it's a pretty good chance that you can... You can find David Weber on a panel or see him at, at a con in your area. Well, um, okay, two things, uh, three things. One is I like people. Uh, so, you know, unless I'm having a migraine or something, um, I'm doing one of the things I enjoy doing when I'm meeting new people or, or checking in with old friends who I only see it at cons. Uh, another part of it is my sense that an author has certain things that he owes to his fans. Now, the, the most important thing is he owes them an honest day's work for an honest day's dollar in terms of what he writes, what he produces. Um, he, he owes them the integrity of what he's doing, and he owes them stories they enjoy reading. Um, but there's also, I remember when I was starting out as a pro, and I remember the accessibility of people like Roger Zelazny um, and uh, Fred Saberhagen, who was painfully shy, but such a wonderful, nice person once you got to meet him. And I decided that I would rather emulate people like that than certain people who shall remain nameless. Um, if you cannot, as the writer, give back to someone who has invested so much in your work, who's read your work, who has come to a convention, paid the membership, taken the time off of work, gotten the transportation costs budgeted, et cetera, to see you because they love your books. If you can't give that person some of your time, then there's something wrong with you. And that's just the way that I've I've always always felt about it. And Sharon is is much the same. Um 
And Sharon is, is in some ways, she's kind of my interface quite often because you'll get people at a con who don't want to come up and bother me while I'm talking to somebody else or something, and they'll, they'll ask Sharon a question. And Sharon probably knows the answer to the question as well as I do, but she's five feet nothing. Well, okay, five feet one on a tall day. Um, you know, uh, and, and people are more willing to talk to her. Well, what she'll do is instead of answering the question, she'll go, oh, man, that's a good question. Come with me and tow this person over to where I am talking to people and say, David, so-and-so has a question. How about and, – and that gives them the contact point. You see what I'm saying? I think that Sharon and I as a team are a lot more effective at conventions than I would be by myself. And Martin, I think it's true to say that um, the TRMN as a whole loves Sharon. Oh, most definitely. I mean, she's, yes, she's, she's well loved by, by pretty much, I think everybody in the organization. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and we're kind of, I mean, you know, we're, we're a team um, in every sense of the word. Um, I can't imagine, well, I can't imagine, I just don't like to imagine doing this without her. Okay. Um, but, but. Well, it's a, it's an amazing asset to have a spouse who also is um, somebody that can, um, uh, that can interact um, because there's a lot of, uh, you know, I've seen authors that have incredibly shy uh, spouses or spouses who just don't, who aren't interested in, and Sharon is, um, is none of those. She is, uh, she's a sort of warm and welcoming uh, gateway to you. (laughs) And she's smart. Um, I, well, I think, I think that, I think that there is a degree to which being the spouse of a writer has some of the same connotations as being uh, the spouse of a pastor or the spouse of somebody in the military. There's a degree to which for full success to be accomplished, you have to be able to embrace what your spouse is doing and be supportive Otherwise, you're going to wind up with a situation where you have somebody who gets a, a reputation as a recluse or 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 whatever. Um, now, by the same token, I think that the writer half of that team um, has to be aware that there's a real world out there, um, and that every so often you're going to be the one who has to take the kids to the orthodontist. <laughs> you know, um, and. Um, I I I know we're 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 getting uh, a field from fandom here, but in a sense we're not because Sharon is as much part of of fandom as I am. Uh, with the the Grand Duchess's tea at the cons, uh, like I say, she's more of our our face on on social media than I am by far. Um, so in some ways, in some ways, when a con invites me, they're getting two guests. Okay, um, and that's 
part of the whole fandom experience too, because it's for the most part the cons are run by fans. Um, and that's actually something that we haven't specifically touched on here. We've talked a lot about conventions. We've talked about the fact that, you know, uh, Bu9 and, and HonorCon, TRMN, and HonorCon and Manticon. But the truth is that the vast majority of science fiction conventions are put together by fan organizations who, who decide they want to have a convention. They want to invite friends and strangers uh, who share their interests to come and have a really fun weekend um, exploring it. Um, and they would not exist without fandom. The origin cons and, and Comic-Con and whatnot grew out of the platform of the volunteer cons that are the, 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 um, the ground floor of of organized fandom well um one thing i wanted to do before we uh i want to make sure we do uh, is to um is to uh let martin tell us a little bit more about how um you could actually say you wanted to give to the um to the uh big cat rescue and and how how would you go about that um i want to make sure we get that in before he before I forget. The, the easiest way to give to Big Cat Rescue is to go straight to their website, to be perfectly honest. Um, you can go straight to, um, I believe it's bigcatrescue.org. Um, we'll get you there. That'll give you a chance to donate directly to them. You can sponsor a cat directly if you'd like. Um, you can also donate through the TRMN. And if you'd like, if you go to trmn.org, we have a donate button on our webpage. And then we collect everything there, and then we send it on down to them about four times a year. So either way works for us. Uh, either way works for Big Cat Rescue. If you donate directly to Big Cat Rescue, it's a tax write-off. If you donate to us, it's not. Mm-hmm. So Get involved which, with whichever, uh, the Royal Mansport Navy. Uh, you, the website is a, is a great place to go. Yeah, that's a great place to go. You can find us on Facebook. Facebook is is a good way to interact with a lot of members, see what we're about. Um, finding us at conventions, just look for the guys in the black and gold uniforms. We stand out pretty much at every con we're at. <laughs> it's the advantage of the color scheme, I guess. So, I, mean, I, I a, planned a, that very carefully, Martin. That was that yeah. was that was front and center in my thinking when we did this. Trust me. But we thank you. We we, we thank you for that. Um, yeah. But it, you know, it means it means it means we stand out quite effectively. Um, we're 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 easy to find. Um. You know, but Facebook and our website are probably the best the best ways to find us. It's worth pointing out that there's lots of other fan organizations out there that cover other aspects of science fiction. Um, if you go to a con, you can see people. Um, dressed as stormtroopers because they're a member of the 501st Stormtrooper Legion, which is a fan organization that's really into dressing like stormtroopers. There's uh, Starfleet, which is the Star Trek organization. There's a Klingon organization. Um, There are people that just, they don't actually belong to an organization. They just, you know, will will do it for fun. There's people like me, like, you're never going to see me in a uniform. I just don't do it. 
I'm just not, that's, that's not how my fandom, that's not where my interest in fandom is. Um, but I like going to cons because I get a chance to have conversations with other people that are also real serious, hardcore fans of science fiction. Um, mm-hmm. I'd recommend to anybody out there who hasn't, uh, who's, you know, not really been plugged in with the fan universe um, that they just try going to a con. And in some ways, the smaller, yes. the better. If you go to something like, like Dragon Con, it is real easy to be like, oh, my God, who are all these people? Uh, because you are jumping right into the deep end of a con, which is like, you know, uh, as Sharon is fond of saying, 40,000, 50,000 of your closest friends. Um, yeah, I think but, it's more like uh, 75 my, now. Yeah, well, my my personal preference is to attend smaller cons, um, and there are several reasons I feel that way. One is that it gives me much greater opportunity of actually being able to spend time with the fans, uh, which is not always the case, especially at something like Dragon Con, where if you start talking to somebody, you become a conversational flow problem. Uh, that is, it has to be dealt with. Um, there's another factor in my case, which is that I can do uh, a small con a lot more good in terms of perhaps attracting membership to help them cover their budget than I can someplace where there are already going to be 75,000 people. You know what I'm saying? Um, but the main thing for me, okay. I go to the cons for the fans. That's the reason that I'm there. And I'm not saying I'm going to the cons to be there for the fans. I'm saying I'm going there for the cons because I am a fan, and this is where I see them. Okay? And at a small con, I actually get to spend time with them. And at a monster con, I don't. And if you're a fan... There's a good chance at a small con, you know, your favorite author goes to a small con, there's a pretty good chance you could have a conversation with them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you know, there. it's important to remember that a lot of science fiction writers, just like a lot of science fiction fans, are introverts, and they're expending energy like mad when they're in a room full of people having conversations with people. So, you know, you gotta you got to respect their desire to, and sometimes they just have time issues where they really have to move on. Oh yeah. Um, but on yeah. the flip side, you know, it's I I have conversations with writers all the time at cons, um, and um, you know I've established a lot of friendships that way mm-hmm. um, because I just ended up talking to somebody at a con. Um, and I guess the last thing I'd like to say, I think the last thing. Um, Maybe there's two things. The first one is is that the, the <laughs> internet the, the the internet's a great resource and, and of course, you know, these days there was a time period where you had to explain to people what the internet is and why it would be a good resource, et cetera. But I got started in all of this because of people that I had not met in person for some period of time after I'd been communicating with them. Um and, you know, up to and including um up to and including people who, you know, I my there's a, a couple of science fiction authors on the West Coast, Dave Trowbridge and Sherwood Smith, who wrote the Exordium series. Um, I ended up corresponding with Dave, and then I ended up corresponding with Sherwood. And when Dave married Deborah Ross, you know, I went out to the wedding and got to meet a bunch of his friends out there. And, and that's all because at some point 
I found him online and sent him an email and said, you know, I really like these books. Um, and then it just sort of grew from there. Um, but uh, the last thing I would get, was going to say is I'll talk a little bit more about the differences between so, uh, smaller fan-run conventions and things like Comic-Con. When I went to ManciCon a couple of years ago, um, during the closing ceremonies or the closing uh, uh, assembly thing, somebody made a – they were thanking all the people that had helped out with the con, and one of them was the people that had helped out with the con suite. You know, for those who haven't been to a con before, the con suite is, you know, the con generally will provide you with food and drinks um, depending upon where you are and what budget they have. It may be just snack food or it may be like you could actually eat your meals in the con suite. And the people who work there, they're all volunteers. I mean, they basically volunteered to spend a, a weekend cooking for you. Um, and there's other people that spent volunteered to spend a weekend, you know, doing setup and tear down and all all the rest of it, or being the AV geek, et cetera, et cetera. So, as somebody who's run a con before, um, when you're running a con, you're not attending a con. <laughs> um, no. And it, there was just something about that sense of community, and um, I mean, it was just a really cool experience. And I ended up going home and writing this essay. Uh, called so what is a science fiction convention anyway um, mm -hmm. that sort of goes through all the things and talks about the different types of cons and why I like the cons I like and stuff like that and uh, maybe I can well, talk the, the, to into the website well there, there's a there's a traditional thing at at cons called the dead dog party uh, which happens when you've done the teardown, everybody is exhausted from having done the con, they're sitting around, they're talking, it's the con committee, uh, it's whatever guests are still there. I always try to do the dead dog party because the folks who work the hardest at the con um, are generally on the con committee and didn't get a whole bunch of chance to interact with authors who they probably invited because they liked their books. Um, and so I think that one of the things that is a, um, a courtesy, I, I think of it as a moral obligation, but also it's a moral obligation because it's the courteous thing to do, is to try and make sure that those people who worked hard running the con suite or whatever, if they want to have a few minutes with an author whose books they like, the least the author can do is come by the con suite and sit down and have a plate of food in his lap and laughter and conversation and give them those few minutes. And when BU9 is at a con that David's at, we will oftentimes be at the dead dog party or near it, but we actually make a special point of being as far away from David as we can in the process. Um, and that's because... Mm -hmm. Um, and that and that's because of the deodorant, David. You really need to take care of that. Yeah, um, yeah, no. I think that was what it was. <laughs> no, it's 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 actually because Mr. we get a Ripper, chance to talk to David all the time. <laughs> we get a chance to talk to David all the time, and uh, we don't. We're going to make him the best of the deodorant brand. <laughs> <laughs> well, David and Sherwood have already said they're going to put me in a book as a disease. Um, <laughs> Uh, but we always, we always want to let everybody else have a chance to go and have that conversation with David 
because we can, you know, we can talk to David when we need to. Um, and so we try to stay out of the way of other fans who don't have as much access to David. So. And there are times when I will go out of my way to take someone who, from View 9 who's there and involve them in it because they're maybe actually in a better position to explain some of this to, to the fans than I am. And I know that sounds a little weird, but when you look at the degree to which what we do has, um, has cross-pollinated um, in, the, in this entire process, it actually makes sense that there are these, these aspects of the honorverse that they have more accessible to them than I do to me, because I have to think back through the entire honorverse to get to that point. But if somebody has a question about um, um, uh, the communications array and, and, and Bill's there, I'll say, Bill, <laughs> why don't you take this one? Um, it's, it's, it's one of those things where Chris says, you know, there's, there's, I guess, I guess it's a matter of, of considerateness. Okay. But it's considerateness for everyone involved. Well, if you go to a convention like, uh, Manticon, um, you, uh, you'll have that experience a lot more likely than uh than than another kind and, and maybe you know um if if i go to manticon you can answer my question about the macrame knots that i sent in anonymously david <laughs> oh, oh it was you it was you okay and i don't consider that to be minutia that's be beneath you <laughs> oh 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 so, In fact, I was thinking about writing a paper for it for Bu9, but uh... <laughs> so Tony, well, just it just occurred the... to me. Yeah, uh, it just occurred to me, Tony, that there's something that you should that you haven't talked about um, in the context of cons, et cetera, et cetera, and that's the Bain Traveling Roadshow. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Well, uh, this is one of the things that is, uh, you know, as a publisher that we we get to interact with our readers um, so much, you know, and me and Jim Menz and Tony Weiskopf, um, the editorial team, uh, it's just, uh, it's amazing the kind of feedback you get and you get to hear the writers uh, attempt to explain what they did, which is always fun uh, to listen to. You don't have a clue what Sometimes they, they're sometimes the side of their brain that explains things is not the side of their brain that wrote the books. So, but uh, and David seems to have access to a subconscious uh, at will, uh, which which not all writers do. There are times, there are times when your 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 loving publisher asks you a question and you go yes. <laughs> So, uh, but what we do at the as with the road shows is we will um, every author that's at the convention that we can possibly get if their schedule permits uh, get in. Uh, we'll have them come in and talk about their books, and we'll we'll show the art, and we'll give away free books um, and free other stuff. And uh, it's kind of a rollicking fun time, I think. Um, and it's more like me emceeing when I do it than than necessarily uh, just. Uh, 
throwing the information out there. A lot like doing a podcast in a way. Mm-hmm. Well, and and uh, I would say, and this is this is not an effort to suck up to my publisher, um, but I would say, in in all seriousness, that Bain is extremely well tuned in to the fan community. I think better than than other publishers that I could mention off the top of my head. I I know who Chris is and and Martin and uh, you know some members of V9 and Anton now, um, it, you know and this is something that you know in mainstream publishing just doesn't happen. And we listen to the readers and of course we uh, you know we have forums. Uh, Tony haunts some of the Bain forums. Uh, my boss Tony Weisskopf, the publisher, and it's just uh, I think that's also what makes Bain a brand. Um, we're not just, uh, you know, David Weber is us, uh, but in a way, um, you know, it's, he's part of the brand as well, uh, because it's a sort of a brain trust that was all originally put together by Jim Bain, uh, when he formed the company back in the eighties. I I was going to say that Jim really, 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 um, casts a big shadow. Um, and I still, you know, it's like two people in, in my life, both professionally and personally that we lost too soon were him and Roger. Um, I wasn't ready to turn either of them loose yet. Um, but, um, I cannot begin to describe um, how good Jim Bain was at finding and supporting and developing new writers. I mean, I just, I really can't. Um, and um, I think probably I would have done fairly well anyway, but I know that the way that my career went and the way that it was supported Jim Bain was there every step of the way. He wasn't one of the publishers who said, I published your damn book. Good luck. Okay. And he was there. He was there because he cared. He really did. And that is, I think, one reason why the Bain brand continues to resonate with fandom as well as it does. Because that sense of we give a, we give a damn is still there. Okay, you may not. I know there are people who don't like Bain's politics. There are people who don't like this. There are people who don't like that. Well, you can find somebody to be pissed off at anything. Um, I don't know anybody who actually knows and works with Bain Books who has anything but respect uh, for for the imprint and and the people who run it. Well, maybe one guy. Okay, but he's he's not a good person anyway, so it's okay. <laughs> well. Maybe, maybe as you get to know us over the years, you'll you'll change your opinion, David. But uh. I, you know, I know, you know, I form these snap opinions sometimes. Okay, I, I realize that, but I'm I'm, I'm 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 thirty year judgment. Yeah. What's, <laughs> what's hey, you know.
I don't know if I'm going to open a uh, uh, can of worms or something here, but I wanted to ask uh, about uh, Dave's opinion and, and Bain's opinion on uh, a lot of the fanfic that gets written, uh, how they how they view fanfic. Well, it's um, you got to do it. I mean, as far as Bain is concerned, you got to do it with the author's uh, approach. You know, if you want to get involved with an author's universe, the the very best way to do that is to go to 1632.org and uh, get involved with those folks over at Eric Flint's place because that is a community where uh, your input will be uh, will be um, immediately um, useful and 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 looked at and and that's sort of how it works well there, okay i will say this there's fanfic and there's fanfic um and i tend to stay away from it and the reason that i tend to stay away from it is that it can be um it can be a slippery slope okay now having said that um i am always open to uh, one-on-one discussions of people who want to write in my universe. Um, I I have encouraged several people over the years. I have two projects going on right now uh, with people who talked to me and who wanted to write in my universe. And in one case, we wound up writing in a totally different universe. Um, But I have someone right now who is... uh, who is actually working on uh, the story of um, Eloise Pritchard and Javier Giscard when they finally admit to one another how they feel about each other in the middle of the um, of the of the People's Republic of Haven. I'm not going to go to a fanfic site where somebody did that without my participation, mainly because I want to be darn sure that anything that I do is mine. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, and also sense. because sometimes, sometimes my blood pressure doesn't deal well with what other people have done with some of my characters. You know, okay. um, but if there is someone who I know is is deeply and passionately interested in uh, in a couple of characters like like Eloise and and Javier, these characters are really important to this person, um, and. Um, there and 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 she she commented, you know, somebody needs to write this story, and so I sent her a personal message. It said, "So do it." <laughs> you know, she was like, "What?" Um, and 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 that's 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 what we're what we're working on right now. Um, Joelle, really, it was the letters letters from Grayson, uh, which was not fanfic, but it was definitely in the honorverse working with me, but going someplace totally from where I was. That's one thing that fanfic can do for you, is it can push you into into filling in corners of the universe you wouldn't have filled in anyway. But I do have concerns over whether or not what I do is mine, if I'm going to step on somebody else. Um, and I did have an incident with somebody who had written fanfic that I had never seen who proceeded to give me an awful hard time for about six months about demanding recognition for my use of his idea. 
Um, and that's another reason why I stay away from fanfic, because your interpretation of whether or not I'm using your idea and my interpretation may differ, but if I can honestly say, I never read the story, then that's really kind of the end of the conversation. You know what I'm saying? And this guy yeah, was, was scary. And that's really when I formed my policy on, on whether or not I'm going to do uh, you know, be associated with fanfic. There's a part of me that hates having made that decision, okay, because there's some really cool stuff uh, that, that people do from time to time. But I just, it's one of those uh, once burned, twice shy things, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. And like I say, I'm not, it's one of those areas where there's not a perfect solution. Um, and I wish there was, um, in, in so many ways, but there isn't. And that's a downer of a note, isn't it? (laughs) Well, uh, like I said, um, you know, Eric has sort of codified this and he, he, in it, if you're interested in developing as a writer, that might be a, a, a place to go and, and look into that, um. Oh, absolutely. Eric is Eric is one of those people who is totally, totally comfortable with sharing his universe. Okay, um, I'm comfortable with sharing it. I'm not comfortable with ceding control of it. And Eric uh, is. I'm not saying that he's giving up control of his universe, but what I am saying is that he has less. I hate to say this because it makes me sound ter- so terrible. He has fewer control issues. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, he's a he's also a damn communist. <laughs> he is not a communist. A little bit of a <laughs> yeah, he's not a communist. Yeah. There's a reason. There's a reason why, why why Mr. Flint runs the Red Letter Cafe and landing in the honor in the, in the Stephanie stories. I'm yeah. just saying. He's the most successful uh, Marxist I've met. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, that's fair. That's fair. Um, So uh, (laughs) what, uh, what, how about the future of this? Um, How do you, uh, when you lay your pen down, David, how do you, how are you going to tell fans or if, will you never? um, And do they keep you going? Um, Oh, do, do I say to them, okay, guys, I'm done? Um, okay. The rule that I made for myself many years ago uh, is that if I can recognize the time when I am no longer doing good work, I'll lay down my pen, okay? Um, the problem that sometimes you have is that you're the last one to know. Um, if that is the the case. A couple of years ago, when I was dealing with um, some significant health issues, um, and I know you know what I'm talking about, um, I was not doing my best work. Um, The work that I did needed to be done. But it didn't have uh, the flow from from my end. It was more a case of 
I am sick as a dog, but I have to get this done. Um, if I reach the point where that's the norm rather than an aberration that I'm working my way through, then I won't be giving the fans what they deserve, and it'll be time for me to stop. Um, I could actually envision myself continuing the Honorverse with a new crop of writers. Um, And what I mean by that is young writers, new writers, established writers who I know and I trust who would work with me on on taking the honor verse maybe even to places I hadn't thought of to go. One of the reasons I wanted to work with Tim on this is because I respect him so much as a writer. I like him so much as a person. But I also knew that he and Tom, between them, would explore aspects of the Manticore Ascendant novels that just wouldn't have occurred to me. Um, And I think overall it has worked very, very well. So it's possible that I might be open to doing that with some other writers uh, down the road. There are certain core aspects of the honor verse that you will pry out of my cold, dead hands. Um, But there are other aspects of it that I think, partly because of my experience with Bunine, uh, could profit from some additional viewpoint, some additional treatment. And the and the universe turned into a far larger canvas than I envisioned when I started. I expected about eight books, um, to be honest, with the story arc that I had laid out. And as I got into building the universe, and I kept filling in bits and pieces of it because I needed that particular bit of background to explain what was happening now, the universe itself, the literary universe itself, became an entity that helps to command and to drive the stories. And it's it's honking big. I hadn't realized how big it was until Tom and I were talking about something the other day, and I realized that we have sketched in the bare bones, the bare bones of the next best thing to 3,000 years of history in the Honorverse. I mean, if you think about that and you think about all the places in that 3,000 years where there are going to be gripping stories to be told about human beings dealing with the challenges of that particular time, there's a lot of room left. And there's no way in the world I'm going to get to it all. There's much to explore. Um, the next book in the series, by the way, uh, is if, if you want to get it in e-art form, which is uh, with uh, with some additions uh, yet to come, perhaps from David, because he seems to be sending them in by the week, and uh, some uh, hey, hey, <laughs> some proof. Actually, the new the new version has all that in there, and uh, and some proofreading uh, mistakes because we haven't proofread it yet. But David turns in very clean copy. Um, it, you can go ahead and buy the e art right now and find out uh, what the next chapter is. Uncompromising honor to at Bain, uncompromising honor at bainebooks.com. And, and the book, the print book, will be out in October um, in hardcover. 
as well, as, along with the real ebook, or that is the ebook that is the exact uh, mirror image of the of the hardcover. Um, so that's called uncompromising honor. That's it's a good, you know, it like David said, it's got a whole lot of great stuff in it, and it's not a bad place to dive into the honorverse if uh, if you want to. Yeah, that really, really different. Well, and and I I will say that I am getting a whole list of why didn't you do this scenes from people who have read the E-Arc. and I'm like the freaking book is two hundred sixty thousand words long already. Where did you want me to put all this? And they're like, well, you could have left out. And I'm like, yeah, what should I've left out? And they're like, uh, well, uh, let me see now. Well, uh, you could have left out. Uh, but what I wanted to say here, plug-wise, is, um, as I say, Sharon and I just completed our 20th anniversary. This month, April, is also the 25th anniversary, 25th anniversary of On Basilisk Station. And this novel ends the storyline, not necessarily the honorverse or the ongoing history of the honorverse, but the storyline that I began in On Basilisk Station 25 years ago. Uh, so I can honestly say, people are going to say, well, you never finish a series. I can honestly say I finished part of one, <laughs> and it only took me a quarter century. I'm 66. Well, I got another, not a quarter century, but a while, a while uh, to get other stuff uh, cranked out. But I am satisfied. I'm pleased with the book. Um, um, and it must be pretty good because uh, uh, other Tony sat down when I was there in the office back for, for Honor Con, and she said, it's long. And I said, well, yeah. And she said, so I went into it to find scenes to cut. And I said, yeah. And she said, I got two scenes I need you to add. <laughs> I was like, Okay, I got her. <laughs> but I think it's good. I think the readers will like it. I think so. about the e-arc that I will say is that even David may not know this. There's a little secret in there that Tony put in as a as a April Fool's uh, present, since that's when we started selling it. Really? Yes. I will say no more. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Do I have to buy the ERC to get it, or will you send it to me? <laughs> well, you might have to read it to get it. Uh, so. Yeah, well, by that, I get to. I will say, it is not an additional bit of text, of course. So, enough said there. Well, I want to thank David Weber, Christopher Weave, Martin Lessam, Anton Peterson, and Arius Kaufman for, uh, for hanging out and talking about all this stuff tonight. Um, thanks so much guys for, uh, for being with us for this, uh, this cool round table. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. This was part two of a two part interview. Part one is available on last week's podcast. This is another entry in Alliance of Equals, a Leiden Universe novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior, and challenged at every turn by opportunists on their new homeworld of Sherbleek, 
and low on funds, Clan Corval desperately needs to reestablish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. To this end, master trader Sean Yosgalen and Corval's premier trade ship, Dutiful Passage, is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But re-establishing trade and preserving the lives of the few remaining members of the clan aren't all of Corval's problem. Matters come to a head as Dutiful Passage, accustomed to being welcomed and feeded at those ports on its call list, finds itself denied docking and blacklisting while agents of the DOI mount armed attacks on others of Corval's traders under the very eyes of port security systems. Traveling with dutiful trader on this unsettling journey is Patty O'Scalen, the master trader's heir and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for time lost due to Corval's unpleasantness with the Department of the Interior, but she is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age, and perhaps her very life, is threatened by it. And here is the latest entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals. Tolly Jones, I believe that your action of repulsing her offer of comfort and assistance has placed Pilot Hazenthal's honor into a compromised state. In order to redeem her Melanti, the very last thing she may do is to turn aside from her purpose. She will pursue you and neutralize your enemies. She will accept your thanks, whereupon she will slay you. Tolly looked up from his reader, frowning. What in deep space have you been reading? The Rejected Lover in Three Acts the admiral told him. He had been excited to read this particular play. It seemed to speak immediately to the situation between Tolly and Pilot Haz. The Rejected Lover, the most famous Melanti play never written by a Leaden? Admiral Bunter hesitated, checked his reference, and the front matter of the play itself. My source indicates otherwise. Tolly tipped his head. What's your source? Square Truth, the 144 most influential Melanti plays, written by Patrick S. Bagley, professor of exotic art forms. Well, there's your problem right there. That book's nothing but one long exercise in cultural misunderstanding, start to finish. Made the professor a deal of money back in the day, because he got it assigned as a textbook to all the drama departments and the anthropology departments in all the schools in his university system. A lot of his colleagues said nice things about him and his book, because now that there was a Terran book written by a Terran, they didn't have to read any more scary and uncomfortable Leaden criticism. Didn't much matter to them whether most of the content of the book was factual which it wasn't, or made up directly out of Professor Bagley's head, which it was. It is a false book, a fiction, a false book, but not fiction. It's just wrong. And the play, Tolly sighed. Many critics agree, which mostly you'll find that they don't, that the play's a bad play. 
whether it's read by a Leaden or a Terran. It was written by a Terran named Kenner Earbase, way back a hundred standards or more as part of his novel. The novel got forgotten pretty quick, but the play has a life of its own. Been plenty of thoughtful criticism of it in the Leaden literature. You might want a cross-ref. Just a suggestion, understand. I'm not your mentor. Admiral Bunter hesitated before he spoke, taking care to soften his voice. I wish you would be. I'm not completely against the idea myself, but I don't see it happening so long as our relative Melantes are in a state of jailer-prisoner. If you'd like to change your intention to take me to Nostrilia and turn me over to the Liar Institute authority there, then I'm pretty sure we can return to terms that are more comfortable for both of us. No. The word was spoken in the flat voice of the core itself. Tali did not speak. Though he did fold his hands atop the table, his eyes alert and a slight frown on his face. Deliberately, Admiral Bunter produced a sound that mimicked a human sigh, hoping it would cover his dismay, his most profound dismay. I believe, he said, as if it did not concern him in the least, that Inky set a core mandate. Yeah, Tolly agreed. Sounds like that's exactly what she did. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a cache of conversational missiles, a clutch of wise eggs and audacious dragons, plus thanks and praise to David Weber, Martin Lessam, Christopher Weave, Anton Peterson, and Arius Kaufman. And remember that uncompromising honor, David Weber's next entry in the Honorverse, and a big one, is now available in EARC from Bain eBooks. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. Bye.